feminism has become synonymous with a type of feminism that is deeply entrenched in anti-blackness and in imperial imperialism. And frankly, it's something that I can relate to because at least for the last, you know, 20 years from what I had seen, there really hadn't been a lot of space to call yourself a feminist and also critique uh, empire and critique the war on terror. Um, there still aren't that many spaces, but they are opening up. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening Hi, everybody, and welcome. My name is Sarah Leonard. I'm the editor of Lux Magazine, and we're a one-year-old glossy print magazine with socialist feminist politics. Um, since this is an internationalist event, um, I'll say in our first few issues, we've published writing from Egypt, Mexico, the UK, from India's farmers' protests during COVID. And our forthcoming issue features reporting on feminist movements in Afghanistan and in Japan. So take that, New York Times, international feminism might have more bureaus than you do now. Um, you can click to subscribe, which we encourage you to do. Um, that money goes to pay every writer and artist who will be published in Lux Magazine. And in these dark times, we're going to be doing more than ever to confront the attacks on women and queer folks in this country. Um, and to say a few words about what's been happening over the last few days, it's obviously very bizarre for something to feel so predictable and yet so horrifying. And so what we've been writing about in Lex since the first issue is that none of the institutions that are supposed to protect reproductive freedom are going to do it. Not Planned Parenthood and NARAL, not the Democratic president who supported the Hyde Amendment until three years ago, uh, not the Supreme Court, where a third of the majority planning to overturn Roe v. Wade has been credibly accused of sexual harassment or assault. Um, so we're gonna need to figure it out. We're gonna need to protect ourselves. And to do that, we should be looking to what other feminists have done all over the world. And we need solidarity. So already people in the U.S. are getting the abortion pill from aid access, which is based in the Netherlands. Or if you're looking for an example of how to kick in a government building to get abortion restrictions rolled back, you might be looking to Mexico. So there's a certain tendency in the U.S. to believe that because we sit at the heart of empire, other people need us more than we need them. And never has it been more obvious that this isn't true. And to succeed, we need a deep knowledge and solidarity with feminist struggles everywhere. So tonight is about building a more international feminism. Um, I'm going to introduce the panelists real quick. I'll ask some questions and let them take it away. And we're really thrilled to be here with you. So to make some quick introductions... Um, Rosina Ali is a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine and a fellow at Type Media Center. 
Her writing covers the war on terror, Islamophobia, and the Middle East and South Asia. She was previously on the staff of The New Yorker and the Cairo Review of Global Affairs. And she is currently writing a book about the history of Islamophobia in the United States. You should also check out her forthcoming piece in the new issue of Lux, an incredible profile of the poet Soma Sharif. Um, uh, Margot Okazawa Ray is a professor emerita at San Francisco State University and a transnational feminist activist. She works on militarism, armed conflict, and violence against women in the U.S. and around the world. She's a founding member of the International Women's Network Against Militarism and Women for Genuine Security and was a founding member of the Combahee River Collective. Her recent publications include Nationizing Colette Coalition and Solidarity Politics for U.S. Anti-Militarist Feminists, and Gendered Lives Intersectional Perspectives. Sophie Pinkham is the author of Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine. She has written about Russian and Ukrainian culture and politics for the New York Review of Books, the New Left Review, the New Republic, the Nation, and many other publications. She produced a short documentary, Balka, on women, drugs, and HIV in Ukraine. Um, and if you haven't listened to her on the Time to Say Goodbye podcast, ho hosted by Lux contributing editor Tammy Kim, you got to go listen to it. It's extremely good and very helpful for understanding the conflict. Um, so to get started, um, I want to start with you, Rosina. Um, one of the hallmarks of the war in Afghanistan um, was a narrative about the liberation of Afghan women by Americans. Of course, as leftists, we know this isn't true, but at the same time, there haven't been the sort of robust relationships between feminists in the U.S. and in Afghanistan that we might want there to be. Um, and the points of solidarity haven't always been clear amid sort of all the propaganda around the war. You're recently back from Afghanistan, and I wonder if you could speak to the feminist work you're just back from reporting on and some of the potential points of solidarity that you saw. Yeah, uh, thanks, Sarah and Lux and Haymarket. I'm really excited to be here. Um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think we all probably remember in in October 2001 when Representative Carolyn Maloney wore a burqa to the House floor to help justify um, why this war against Afghanistan was so important and how we needed to save women. And that really has been the underlying message. Um, of the U.S. when it comes to women in Afghanistan. And truthfully, you know, what happened after 2001 is that there was opening for a lot of women um, in places like Kabul and places like the northern provinces. Uh, there were more opportunities for education, for jobs. Um, but there were also a lot of women who lost their husbands or sons or fathers uh, in the war and who ended up struggling financially. Uh, you know, their, their lives were basically unraveled. And that's one part of the, um, the imperialist project in Afghanistan. But the other part of the pro imperial project that really uh, became so clarified to me while I was there was just how much Afghanistan depended on U.S. aid. And the last 20 years of the U.S. and Afghanistan has really 
been shaped by, you know, public, basically 70% of the Afghan state depended on aid. Um, and the U.S. wasn't really focused on building the state. And in that sphere, what happened was that the U.S. and its allies and a lot of supposedly well-meaning people who wanted to save women essentially treated women as not being a part of society, but being apart from society. So what happened was that we had they used NGOs to fill in the gaps of services. And it was these NGOs that stepped in that offered essential aid, but they women do not get politicized <laughs> through NGOs. Um, women do not become uh, do not gain or hone their political voice through NGOs. Um, and we really see the crux, like the aftermath of that now. So what's happening, another way to wage that the U.S. has continued to wage war in Afghanistan is through economic sanctions. And it has essentially frozen assets that belong to Afghanistan uh, $3.5 billion and has, has closed off the state's ability to really provide for its people. Now, how does that affect women? Well, you know, most of the conversation the last few months, rightly and understandably, has been around girls' education. Taliban has, re- you know, recently reversed a decision. And as of right now, it's not allowing girls over the age grade six to go to school. That's all terrible. But on the streets in Kabul, the richest city in the country, women and girls are begging on the streets. Um, I saw, you know, girls as young as three and women as old as 60 begging on the streets, sleeping in parks. Um, Those who weren't, I also spoke with many other women who used to work at NGOs. But because of sanctions or because of corruption, have also lost their jobs. Um, it's critical to remember that this is still a way in which the U.S. is waging war against Afghanistan, and uh, is particularly particularly Afghan women. Um, and you know, I've I've always thought about how we can show solidarity solidarity with Afghan women without trying to um, without trying to define to them what their priority should be, which is what I believe has been happening the last 20 years. Um, I, I, you know, I'd like to talk about this more and I don't want to take up too much time, but I'll pause here and hopefully we can get into that later. I do very much want to get into that. Um, but I'll um, ask a question of Sophie um, and we'll, we'll circle back. In thinking about the sorts of stories that states tell about women, women frequently become part of war propaganda um, in, in all kinds of ways. We were just talking about Afghanistan, but I know that you've been paying extremely close attention um, to the war in Ukraine and also how the war in Ukraine is presented and understood in the U.S. Um, and so I wonder if you could speak a little bit about um, gender and the perception of war in Ukraine. Well, I would say that the, that gender has really been at the forefront of the intense 
I would call it propaganda push in the U.S. media, also in the British media and a lot of the Western European media um, in the sort of passionate advocacy to step in, to defend Ukraine, to fund weapons and so on. Really central to this effort has been images of, for example, the maternity hospital in Mariupol that the Russians bombed. Um, there was one pregnant woman in particular who was injured there um, who gave birth, but unfortunately died shortly after. Um, and that became almost instantly an iconic image that was on the front page of the New York Times, shot interestingly by a, a female um, war reporter, Lindsay Daddario, if I remember correctly. Um, and it was very, very widely circulated. Um, and these images of pregnant women in particular and mothers with infants in particular being, being circulated were used as sort of centerpieces of the argument that intervention was was essential because this was an extraordinarily barbaric war. Um, and so on one hand, it's complicated, I think, you know, receiving these images when you're coming from a feminist and also an anti-militarist perspective, right? And when you look at the context of other wars that are going on right now that have been going on in the last couple of decades, and especially the wars that have been started or supported or funded by the United States, right? Um, and so I lived in Ukraine. I've been very passionately following this um, and feel extremely personally invested in Ukraine not being taken over by Russia. But at the same time, looking at these images, I couldn't help thinking, you know, you look at the primacy of these images and you would think that no pregnant woman has ever been killed by an American bomb, for example, right? Um, a few women in Ukraine are are hurt. A few pregnant women are, are hurt. And it's a tragedy. It's monstrous, right? Um, but the, dis the totally disproportionate nature of the coverage and the emphasis on in innocent female victims who tend to be written out, I would say. I mean, I'm sure Rosina and Margot would have more to say about this. But when it's a, a, a war in which the U.S. is engaged, pregnant women are written out of the story. Um, pregnant women are never victims, right? It's terrorists and militants or just sort of faceless masses. Um, whereas in the Ukrainian case, we see this intense personalization. The woman, the, um, the woman who was hit in the maternity um, hospital bombing became this sort of overnight celebrity in a way, partly because she, her image was co-opted also by Russian propaganda, which said that she was a, a crisis actor, essentially. It was a sort of complicated story. But in any case, um, the idea of the sort of martyred pregnant woman has been really essential, I think, in, in propaganda to support the war. And again, when I say propaganda, I don't mean it's false because these women were genuinely injured. Um, but then at the same time, there's sort of this flip side of the female victim in Ukraine, um, which is the female soldier. And this is something that's gotten a lot of play for a while, as has the Ukrainian female police officer. Um, and women became a much more prominent part of the Ukrainian police force after the Maidan revolution and the reforms that started in 2014-2015. Um, the U.S. actually was funding these huge police reforms that were supposed to sort of make 
Ukraine, a new democratic, uncorrupt place that had a fantastic police force. Um, and the fantasticness of this new U.S. funded police force was supposed to be embodied in part by these female police officers. Right. And there have also been quite a few. I don't know exactly the numbers, but there have been quite a few um, female soldiers. And it's interesting because on one hand, the idea is that women police officers and women soldiers demonstrate that Ukraine is a place of gender equality and sort of democratic norms. This is the kind of country that we want to be supported, supporting, right? This is an equal country. And I know that Rosina has, um, has some interesting thoughts about how that dynamic played out in Afghanistan. Um, but on the other hand, there is this sort of irresistible draw for many spectators to return to this sort of hyper eroticized attitude towards Slavic women and especially Ukrainian women. Um, and so there, there was a, an image, it was a bit scandalous um, last year of the Ukrainian female service members being asked to march in a parade all in high heels, right? Um, and this was a kind of exciting image for a lot of people. Um, and then a lot of the images that have been circulating online of female soldiers in the the current invasion have been of extremely attractive <laughs> soldiers. I don't know how else to say it, but um, the charge of it is that these are extremely attractive women, often wearing incongruously heavy makeup, um, which I think is unusual on the battlefield, although I have never been a soldier. Um, so I've, I've been interested in how that has played out um, and how the, the narrative of female liberation through sort of participation in the military and in the police force has collided with this idea of Slavic women as sort of objects of Western sexual consumption, um, which, of course, was most obvious in the sort of mail order bride system, as it is sometimes called. I'll stop there. But. Yeah, this is something I want to return to because interestingly, this is something that all of the areas of study that um, you all cover have, have in common. I mean, I know, Margo, this isn't the question I was going to go right to, but I know that you've done also a lot of work on Palestine. And certainly the image of the Israeli female soldier is a powerful image of propaganda um, and has been for, for decades now all over the world. Um, but I also wanted to ask you, um, one of the things that you focused on is anti-base politics all over the world, resisting U.S. military bases. Um, and there have been powerful feminist movements against uh, American bases and the sorts of things that happen around American bases, um, which you've been involved with internationally. Um, and I know that speaks, too, to the fact that often in the U.S. it's hard to know how the left should engage with foreign policy, which is so far out of the realm of what we have control over much of the time, or sometimes it can feel like it, it can be a little clearer what the strategy is domestically. Um, and so I wonder if you could speak a little bit to how you think feminists in the U.S. should think about how we relate to foreign policy, given that your area of focus has dealt with this major arm of sort of high American foreign policy, which is the construction of bases. Yeah, no, I have it. I'm just 
a little bit nervous anyway, and also very excited because the, um, uh, you know, what you all um, have talked about before me, I want to start just by responding quickly to those things, because I think it's very important for, you know, those of us, those of you listening to this conversation to really understand the ways in which feminism, right, and women uh, are deployed, and I use specifically this military term to, um, for whatever benefit um, can be gained to justify war, justify colonization, you know, etc. And I think a, a feminist analysis must include that deployment, that um, use of women and, and women's bodies. Uh, and, and in the, the case that um, Sophie was just talking about, the ways in which um, eroticizing militarism and relationships of domination is part and parcel of the whole militarism project, right? So I'm just so happy that um, uh, you um, talked about that. So yes, you know, for me as somebody um, based in the U.S., U.S. citizenship, and many of us on this call, many of us who are in uh, the U.S., uh, trying to do the right thing. I think it's very, very important for us to think about why is it that in this country, in particular, that foreign policy is separated from domestic policy? Why is it that we're not seeing the connections between the two, right? And so, I want to speak to that a little bit and specifically through the lens of looking at uh, the U.S. military presence. And I think what's going on right now um, in Europe, what's going on in other parts of the world that we're not even getting news of, is we have to include in our conversation, going back to the old words of imperialism, you know, colonization, right? And of course, capitalism, uh, they all go together. So, um, I'd like to just start with uh, uh, just a map uh, of the massive U.S. Uh, military presence in um, what's a new – so the U.S. military is divided into in, – has a command structure that's regional. So there's AFRICOM and Africa, um, uh, you know, et cetera, and I won't go into that. But the one I want to focus on right now, the newest formation is something called the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. And that's uh, partly at least rationalized by uh, thinking about China, you know, as a threat, you know, North Korea, etc. But right now, um, in the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, <laughs> there are 36 nations, more than 50% of the world's population um, uh, in, this, in this region, two of the three largest economies nine of the 10 largest ports, seven of the world's largest standing militaries, five of the world's declared nuclear nations. Those constitute what the U.S. has um, marked as the Indo-Pacific Command. And this is just one of several other commands. So basically, the U.S. has over 700 U.S. bases and installations everywhere in the world, every continent, um, uh, every region. And, you know, think about that. Think about the implications of that. Um, and what's, what's important is that um, the bases 
think about wars as just the tip of the iceberg, right? And that there's an underlying uh, the structures, values, ideologies, institutions that are much more deep-seated than actually the wars, right? Um, and we, ta- in our network, talk about, focus a lot about militarism, right? And not just wars. Um, and one of the questions, and I'll talk about that a little bit later, but one of the questions that I want to answer right now specifically um, is what is the role of U.S.-based feminists, U.S.-based progressive uh, movements, uh, progressive folks in dealing with militarism and the massive presence and destruction of the U.S. military? I focused here just on the Indo-Pacific Command, but we can draw a map of, you know, all the other uh, commands. And, you know, it's our tax monies that are going in to support these operations, right? As well as local governments paying money to have the U.S. military bases uh, and installations in their locations on the one hand. And on the other hand, we see that the money that is being spent on on military and uh, military operations and so forth, you know, could actually be spent in socially useful, um, productive, creative um, needs that we have in our in our country, like homelessness, uh, poor education, so forth. Right. So that's one way to make the connection between foreign policy and domestic policy is just concrete around money. Right. How much money goes for the war effort, military effort, which is a little bit over $2 billion a day. $2 billion a day. Imagine what that could buy. And um, the other one other important thing is that other um, you going back to the Afghanistan, the U.S. war in Afghanistan, you know, there was a lot of talk about the coalition of the willing. Right. Uh, They were small countries. They were beholden to the U.S., um, not just beholden, but dependent on the U.S. And so how must we in the U.S. really think about the ways in which both hard power, military power and soft power, um, uh, economic support, you know, et cetera, goes uh, is is, um, employed to um, support war efforts that only really benefit the elite and um, uh, in not just the U.S., but also in other countries, right, that war is profitable. And that's the other part of, you know, what I want to talk about is that wars and uh, armed conflicts are fundamentally about control and struggle over resources and so capitalism right and i'll stop here and um turn it back over to to you thank you and i want to um pick up on this image that everyone has raised of of the female soldier the female police officer and sort of bring it back to Rosina. um you know you can see a million articles right now that say um you know we have to protect the the female Afghan police officers who have been um, sort of developed or supported by the U.S. 
um, or, you know, talking about their role in combating gender violence in Afghanistan. There's actually, there's an enormous amount of writing about this particular figure and these particular people. And I wonder if you could speak to what that image means. We kind of know what it means in the U.S., but I, I'm interested in sort of what it means domestically um, and what sort of points of solidarity you see that might be more productive or more um, tied into actual politics on the ground than um, than that one? Yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a really good question. That image of um, Afghan female police officers is really interesting. I mean, you know, what I saw on the ground, interestingly enough, was, well, first of all, the Afghan police officers, female police officers that were under the previous government no longer exist. Um, uh, but interestingly enough, I did see um, some women working with the Taliban intelligence uh, as part of their team. And um, it, it kind of just uh, shook me because, you know, on the one hand, it's good that they have jobs. <laughs> but on the other hand, I also know what that work is, uh, what that work entails and where that, who that is targeting. And it's usually targeting political dissidents or other, you know, women's organizations. Um, so it's a, it's, I think for us, it's always useful to remember that the presence of women in, you know, the security state doesn't free women. And I know that's such a basic point, but it's sometimes it's useful to just reiterate that to, to ourselves. Um, but, I, you know, just to add to that, I think one of the, I think back over the last 20 years, and I think like we've made such great strides in, in recognizing the term, that the term, you know, women of color offers us a, a chance to imagine different points of solidarity, uh, you know, different intersection and intersectionalities and how we can find, we can extend solidarity to women of color and, and, and so forth. But I feel like we haven't quite extended that always to women of different cultures and societies. And in particular, I think the image of a Muslim woman over the last 20 years has been very problematic because of our projects in Afghanistan or, or the Middle East. And you know, so, for example, what does it mean to be in solidarity with a Palestinian woman who wears hijab, but who is considered a radical extremist by our media? Or what does it mean to be in solidarity with an Afghan woman who wants to reform her society, but still relates to the identity of being Afghan? And I think these are things, these are questions that we as feminists in the U.S. haven't quite um, really, debates we haven't really engaged in. But, you know, one of the lessons that I have kind of learned during my experience in organizing is that you have to meet people where they are. And at least in Afghanistan, that hasn't been the case. I mean, we, over the past 20 years, we really through NGOs, through our uh, rhetoric, we have really hammered home the point that, you know, we are bringing freedom to Afghan women. We are bringing liberty to Afghan women. Um, we are bringing secularism to Afghan women. And 
women then contort themselves to fit these narratives of the West rather than defining for themselves what they can and want to do within the re- cultural, religious, social constraints they're faced with. And so I, I think like, I mean, what's kind of incredible is that there are points of solidarity uh, that we can pursue. It it just might make us feel uncomfortable. <laughs> so for example, um, there is a group of women in Afghanistan who is trying to appeal to the Taliban under uh, through Islam and trying to win for themselves um, rights and some liberties. Uh, an amazing interview of in the next issue by Sara Ziza, um, which everyone should read. But this is shaping people's political minds. And you can't do that through... You know, you, you, you can't bomb people into having into medical education of women, um, again, within the confines and the constraints that they're faced with, which unfortunately right now is an Islamic emirate under the Taliban. But hopefully we're going to start seeing some shifts in the long term. And I wonder not to be... Um just two nuts and bolts, but I actually was curious if there are things that you think, so say people watching this, I think there's a good chance that people watching this do some amount of organizing and some amount of activism. And I think one of the things that's been really challenging in the how to act in solidaristic ways. And one of the things that was striking to me in working on the interview with points you think of, um, I know that you, you, are a journalist, but I was wondering if you could sort of like point. economic sanctions. Um, you know, I I obviously understand the justification for these sanctions. Uh, the U.S. does not want to recognize the Taliban regime. Completely understandable. But I I spoke to the Taliban um, when I was there. It is not affecting the sanctions. Do not affect the Taliban leadership. They are affecting people on the ground. They are affecting women. Um, And frankly, women cannot go to school and they cannot organize and they cannot, uh, you know, further their political education if they are starving, if they are just trying to the effect of these sanctions. Are they really helping us meet our goal? They're not (laughs) Um, in the last 15 years. And I think now what during the negotiations um, between the U.S. and the Taliban over the last two years, what it could have looked like if there were uh, if there was more of a feminist contingent pushing for certain um, pushing for certain rights for Afghan women from here. Um, I, I think that's more of a long term project, but something that we could do. The Socialism Conference is back. The largest socialist conference in North America returns this September 2nd through 5th in Chicago, and registration is now live. Join hundreds of other activists, organizers, abolitionists, and socialists for four days of discussion and debate about radical politics, history, and strategy. Participate in panels, lectures, and workshops on class struggle unionism, police and prison abolition, black feminism, reproductive justice, working-class internationalism, capitalist crisis, tenant organizing, Palestinian liberation, and much more. Speakers at Socialism 2022 will include Ruth Wilson Gilmore, 
Robin D.G. Kelly, David Harvey, Harsha Walia, Derica Purnell, Olufemi O. Taiwo, Kim Kelly, Muhammad El Kurd, Anand Gopal, Sophie Lewis, and many more. The Socialism Conference is brought to you by Haymarket Books. Visit socialismconference.org to learn more and register today. Register before July 8th for the early bird discounted rate. Once again, that's socialismconference.org. Hi, everybody. Thanks for bearing with us while we reset the screen. Um, and also, if you have um, questions for the second half, now is a really good time to put out um, how the U.S. is interacting with Russia. Um, but there hasn't been there. There's been a lot of criticism of and within the left about our own response um, to the war in Ukraine, having essentially an insufficient set of tools with which to respond and offer solidarity. Um, focus on NATO is probably not the preferred concern of people who are in Ukraine at the moment. Um, and so, Sophie, I was wondering if you could take us through from your perspective, um, what are the mechanisms by which feminists can offer solidarity to women in Ukraine? What, what might that look like right now? Mm -hmm. Well, I think um, the first point that we have to start from is building on what Rosina said, the idea that solidarity begins with listening to what the people in the country are saying, right? And not sort of imposing our own theoretical frameworks necessarily, um, or our own ideological or political desires onto people. Um, and in this case, it's a pretty thorny question, I think, for feminists who are generally anti-war, who are anti-imperialists, um, who are anti-militarization, um, and who may be, who probably are critical of the history of um, NATO expansion, um, the U.S. arming Ukraine, um, the West engaging in various activities that were provocative towards Russia. Um, but the reality now is that Russia did invade Ukraine, right? Um, ultimately, it's it's Russia that is the sort of central imperial power. Obviously, there's a long history of Russia's imperial violence and um aggression towards Ukraine going back for centuries, right? Ukraine has been treated as um, a colony of Ukraine and uh, a colony of Russia um, in multiple kind of political scenarios. So in the imperial period, in the Soviet period, and now it seems that Putin is trying to use the invasion to establish a new sort of explicitly imperial relationship to sort of absorb Ukraine and deny its right to any sovereignty. Um, and under these conditions, the reality is that Ukrainian feminists themselves are, to my knowledge, almost unanimously in support of weapons shipments to Ukraine, right? And I think that this is sort of uncomfortable for people who are on principle against weapons shipments in general. Um, but even Ukrainian feminists who are peace activists, who have been against militarism, who were opposed to things like U.S. shipments of weapons to Ukraine in the past, are now saying basically it's our survival, right? Um, and pacifism means death at this point in the perspective of a lot of Ukrainians, including anti-militarization Ukrainian feminists. Um, so I think the first step is to listen to those voices and 
to give them platforms and to accept that, you know, there are scenarios in which being anti-war doesn't have that much meaning, right? If you're sitting there being bombed, you could say I'm anti-war, but it won't, doesn't stop the Russian bombs from falling, right? Um, so I think it's it's a really complicated ethical conundrum it's in English also online of anti-war Ukrainian feminists calling for weapon shipments to Ukraine. Um, so I think it's important to sort of grapple with that. To the ethics of international solidarities, which of course, like, it's like a pleasant myth that those always operate on some sort of terrain where we always agree, which is what Sophie is pointing to. And so I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit from your experience. Oh, unmute yourself, Margo. I think also, uh, Sophie, that even in Ukraine, though, there there really are also groups of uh, activists calling for not sending uh, weapons and things, right? So even inside, isn't there is a little bit of uh, contestation about that. But what I want to talk about is that, you know, um, we in the U.S. and and Western European countries um, need to hold our governments accountable, right? And it's a both-and moment. Let me just say this. It's a, it's a both-and moment, stopping the war, making sure that um, uh, uh, the, the people in Ukraine, you know, or um, don't have to continue suffering, right? And at the same time, really understanding that more militarization, more weapons are not going to get us where we want to go, which is a peaceful, secure society uh, in Ukraine and, and worldwide. Because remember that all these wars and conflicts are related. It's We're focusing on the U.S. media and uh, European media and uh, uh, that those have been never even portrayed, you know, or... Um, uh, uh, that we, our governments, particularly the U.S., you know, the biggest mil- um, uh, weapons manufacturers, everything, you know, how are we going to hold our governments accountable? How are we going to do that? That's, for me, the conundrum. Right. And unless we feminists take seriously this category of nation, what does it mean to be connected to the U.S. state and U.S. uh, corporations? I think we're going to keep spinning, you know, because um, Rosina mentioned earlier about, you know, Afghan women think about themselves as Afghanis. You know, they think along the lines of nation and nationality, you know, and that might be the, the the primary ways they think about it, right? And we think gender, we don't think nation because we are part of the dominant group and whatever the uh, category that gives us dominance, we don't have to think about it, right? And so for me, a feminist ethical solidarity means that we absolutely listen to the affected people, whether it's in um, Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, Ukraine, you know, and um, see how we can support them, you know, in, in 
uh, whatever ways. I, I don't subscribe to that we should send more uh, weapons. Absolutely not. We can do more direct, nonviolent direct action, you know, in our, our respective countries. How do we make the connections, you know, between domestic policy and foreign policy, while at the same time making sure that not just women in the Ukraine, but women in Yemen, Palestinian women, all these women who are affected by militarism and war at, at using our tax dollars in many ways, right? How do we need to think about our role in ending that kind of um, U.S. intervention? So one of the things that um, we're sort of circling around is the sort of cross-pollination of feminisms that can take place as part of addressing these questions. And I know, for example, um, Rosina, in your piece on Soma Sharif, um, the poet that's coming out in the next issue of Lux, she talks about, um, you know, she's from Iran, but she spent most of her childhood and adulthood in the U.S. Um, and seeing um, Angela Davis speak and use the term women of color and like having her 16-year-old mind blown, um, being like, oh, there's a category that includes me that can connect me to other women. Um and she's incorporated Davis's work into her own work, as well as Audre Lorde's work. Um, and there is this like really amazing sort of meeting of feminisms in her work. And you've been talking a lot about the different ways that happens or fails to happen um, in the States. And I wonder if you could talk about any sort of productive examples of that that you think are interesting right now or anywhere you think that that sort of working. I mean, that's been a big challenge for American feminists in Afghanistan. Um, so I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit. And we'll soon turn it over to questions also. Um, I'm getting questions coming in. So um, so I don't know if I understood your question correctly. Family. I was like, you know, one of the things we're dealing with is we imagine solidarity as um, maybe a space of agreement. Um, but there are no organizing institutions to coordinate like a sort of socialist feminist perspective or a socialist perspective in general. We don't have in like massive international socialist groups that are sort of coordinating opinion. We're hashing this out ourselves um, sort of on the ground. Um, and it's actually, it, you know, we've been talking about the ways we can be solidaristic, but it's actually really, really messy. And I almost wonder if you could talk about, um, talk more about the sort of misunderstandings or the places where these things could sort of get hashed out. I know that's a big question, but I'm trying to kind of get at this, um, like the challenges of solidarity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't say this lightly or just, you know, to win points, but I actually do think that forums like this. Um, and I say this because, so interestingly enough, Sulma Shuri, for those who you don't know, she wrote uh, two books of poetry. One is called Look, um, and that really looks at kind of the wreckage of the war on terror. And the second one is called Customs, which looks at borders and refugees and what it means to belong to a community. But they're both looking at imperialism. And so when I, when I spoke with her, um, I asked her, you know, she's often described as an anti-imperialist poet but not so much as a feminist poet. So I asked her about this and she said, 
uh, that um, she doesn't actually like being described as a feminist. It's not something that she can uh, relate to because feminism has become synonymous with a type of feminism that is deeply entrenched in anti-blackness and in imperial imperialism. And frankly, it's something that I can relate to because there hasn't, at least for the last, you know, 20 years from what I had seen, there really hadn't been a lot of space to call yourself a feminist and also critique uh, empire and critique the war on terror. Um, there still aren't that many spaces, but they are opening up. And I really, really uh, turn to, uh, you know, writings from people like Fulma Sharif, from um, someone like uh, a CUNY professor named uh, Soren Kader, who writes about philosophy, but questions this idea of, you know, things that we, we value as Americans, like freedom, but perhaps are, don't translate, like, these are not the value systems that we see in other countries. And what does that mean for women? And I, I think what had been missing um, for so long, and which I'm really excited to see, are just these conversations happening. And I know that doesn't translate into tangible things yet, but the fact that we're even having space to kind of name and debate this, what you know, what does it mean to be a feminist and to be an anti-imperialist, um, especially during a time when not even many politicians question the war on terror? Um, that's to me, that's one of the most exciting things for these days. Um, and I suppose I want to kick it over to you. One of the things, um, Sophie, you recently shared in art there, you know, abortion has just been severely restricted in Poland, despite a pretty massive uprising of feminists in Poland. Um, and I wonder um, what... Um, what feminists in Ukraine are saying right now about these sorts of crises? Um, what sorts of solidarity can be offered? You know, were there pre-existing conversations between Ukrainian and Polish feminists on this topic? Is this something that is now becoming an international issue kind of all of a sudden? You know, what it, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like that regional conversation, which is suddenly so pressing and scary. Mm. It's interesting because it it there are several issues that are sort of tangled up in that. Um, so Ukraine and Poland are obviously next door neighbors geographically. Um, their languages are also very close. There's a lot of interaction between them historically and also currently. And Ukraine is in a very particular relationship to Poland um, because Poland is part of the EU and Ukraine's economy has just gotten worse and worse, more or less continuously since the end of communism, unfortunately. Um, and Poland has done relatively well, right? Partly because it's in the EU. So a lot of Ukrainians have gone to work in Poland where they are often not treated very well, right? Um, they're kind of economic migrants and are treated the way that economic migrants, unfortunately, often are. Um, and now they are refugees. So the the majority, I think, or the largest proportion of Ukrainian refugees are in Poland um, and Poland has welcomed them very spontaneously, right? Partly on the basis of the sort of, you know, enemy of your enemy 
is my friend. Um, Poland is you know, very much against Russia, very afraid of Russia, and very interested in helping victims of Russian aggression, as of course, they were notably extremely uninterested in helping the migrants from um, the Middle East, um, from Afghanistan, who ended up on the Polish border with Belarus um, last year. And there, there was a really horrifying, violent and xenophobic response to those migrants, right? So there's this great contrast with the way that Ukrainian migrants have been treated. Um, and now the idea, the sort of big ideological story is supposed to be that uh, Russian, uh, that Ukrainians are fleeing Russian aggression and ending up in Poland, which is this great EU country that's free and safe and anti-Russian and giving a safe harbor. But for women, it's a different story, right? Um, there was this cut article. There's also an article in the Ukrainian publication Zabarona about all of the women who are fleeing Ukraine and who find themselves pregnant, sometimes through rape related to war, sometimes, you know, for other reasons, and then they don't want to go through with the pregnancy. Um, and it's almost impossible to get a uh, an abortion in Poland. So you have the situation where you, these women have sought safety in this place that's supposed to be the EU, the right side, right, of the sort of new iron curtain or whatever you want to call it. Um, and yet is an extremely misogynistic society that is being run by a deeply reactionary um, Catholic government. Um, and there is this very strong feminist movement in Poland, fortunately, but they haven't made much headway. So I don't know the details of, of collaboration between um, Polish and Ukrainian feminists. I know that there are feminists who are working to help women get abortions. I think probably they sometimes don't want press coverage because it's illegal. Um, but that's certainly another area for feminist solidarity, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's incredibly important to understand. Obviously, very, very covered in a context, as you're describing, where people are celebrating Poland's welcoming of refugees. Um, yeah. I mean, Poland has been, they have a plan to cut through the last old growth forest in Europe to build a big Trumpian anti-migrant fence, you know, and these are the sort of stories that are not getting coverage anymore, but they should be. Yeah, a horrific government. Yeah. So we have an audience question, um, which I know that Margot is going to want to um, start with. So the question is, as anti-militarist feminists, should we always oppose militarism, even if our comrades in the affected nation approve of it in their context? Yes, um, I think we absolutely should oppose militarism. And I want to just uh, show a slide and talk specifically about what militarism is. And it's really important for us to understand that militarism is much bigger than war. Right. We're focused on a particular war right now. There are many wars and armed conflicts going on uh, in many, many parts of the world, as I said before. I think what one of the organizing principles should be um, uh, anti-militarist. Right. And by militarism, you know, our network and, and by the way, I also want to say that just, Rosina, to your point, there are many conversations on the ground among feminists and different parts of the world talking about 
uh, and pushing back on imperialism and call and they call themselves feminists, you know, and and so forth. So I I, I want us to make sure not to paint a broad brush um, about who considers themselves feminists and you know like that. And also even the term woman of color is contentious more than feminism, right? So there the the things that we're talking about are pretty complex. Um, anyway. I think what's important to understand about militarism, it's really that it's a broad system of institutions, investments, practices, and culture that take their meaning and value from war, right? So the war is the manifestation, cultural assumptions, political attitudes, and economic investments. Um, Can I have the next slide, please? So in our network, we've developed what we talk about as a five-finger analysis of militarism, that militarism absolutely involves gender, specifically uh, violence against women, misogyny, deploying feminism and, and women, uh, the toxic, ma- the uh, militarized masculinity that, that is applied to men, uh, absolutely about race, white supremacy, um, xenophobia, uh, to talk about who's the enemy, right, or who should go to war, uh, who can be used on the front lines, um, and uh, thinking also um, about class, obviously the people um, uh, on the front lines usually are the people who are of the uh, in the uh, lower um, uh, strata of uh, societies. They're the ones um, who are recruited as mercenaries. I just saw uh, an advert today. Um, at the airport for um, a company called Marcor, and they're recruiting former Marines to to be mercenaries, right? Uh, I already talked about nation as an important um, uh, way to understand militarism, that it really matters which which country, which state you are connected to if you want to have any kind of um, uh, uh, your problems taken seriously, for example, right? We've completely um, disregarded women in um, uh, Yemen, for example. Uh, and then the really important part also is thinking about the ways in which armed conflicts and militarism absolutely are destroying the earth, right? The U.S. military is one of the biggest polluters uh, on the planet with all the toxin uh, and, and, and contributors to, to climate change. And all these things, you know, are, are very much necessary for capitalism and imperialism to work, right? All these things have to be in place, right? And so I'd like us to, to oppose militarism, right? I'd like us to oppose war, right? And think about are there nonviolent direct actions we could be taking to stop wars wherever they are, right? And we have to then really understand power the power between nations, right? The institutional power, structural power, the power we have as feminists in the US uh, or uh, other powerful countries. Right. And so how do we work upstream 
right? Rather than just working downstream uh, with the affected people. But how do we stop things before they start? Is my question. And what is our role specifically as uh, feminists in the U.S.? I wonder if either of um, either Sophie or Rosina wants to build on that. I um, yeah, I would just make one point um, in support of what Margot said about how to prevent conflicts. Um, I think that you know, apart from the extension of NATO and U.S. military support for Ukraine, another perhaps the most central contributing factor in this war has been energy politics and fossil fuel use. Um, and so one way to have stopped this from happening would have been to reduce Russia's power, which is, you know, overwhelmingly coming from the world's dependent of um, Ukraine about providing military aid and to some extent sort of democracy building. Um, but one thing that would have really helped, in my opinion, Ukraine would have been forms of economic support that would allow it to stop being dependent on the amount of money that it receives from um, the transit of gas through Ukraine, right? That's been one of the most important questions in Ukrainian post in the politics of post-independent uh, independence Ukraine. Um, it gets a huge sum of money from Russia sending gas through Ukrainian territory to Europe. And of course, that's a lucrative business because Europe is so profoundly dependent still um, on fossil fuels and has failed so much, um, so much in, uh, in implementing a fast green transition. Then there's also the question, I won't even go into it because it's more complicated, but you know, the question of the U.S. wanting to sell shale gas and liquefied national uh, natural gas to Europe and thereby replace the gas that's being uh, transited um, to Europe from Russia. Um, and I think that fossil fuel competition is also an important factor in, in this war. War is profitable. And it is fundamentally about controlling resources Right. And um, uh, um, generating power to control the resources. And I think we have to really wrap our head around that. Yeah, I think that's why this is like actually what you're saying here. So it's an incredibly helpful and productive way to talk about the war in Ukraine, which is not mm -hmm. the present media framework for understanding it. Um, and Rosina, did you want to speak to this question or I also have more audience questions? Um, well, I, I just wanted to say, you know, I, I think, you know, as Marco said, these are very complex questions. And I think one of the tricky things about um, how to show solidarity with other with women in other countries becomes a bit complicated when we look at scenarios in which there are people really, there are um, movements on the ground fighting. Like obviously as we see in Ukraine, uh -huh. also as we saw in Syria, in uh, the Kurdish forces. Um, and it was kind of incredible because the Kurds, the SDF in Northern Syria was able to implement a philosophy that 
recognized equality for women. And that's incredible for a region that had just been uh, controlled by ISIS for many years. Um, And the only way that they were able to actually gain victory from ISIS was because of U.S. support. Uh, U.S. military support. And I, I think these are, you know, I, these are really, these are really difficult questions to grapple with. But I think it just, um, you know, we as leftists need to, these are the questions we need to be talking about as well. And, and I just, I just wanted to bring that, bring that up as an example of how, you know, there are certain contexts in which, actually a lot of contexts in which this is not a clear cut there's no clear cut answer. Well, you know, I, I, I can I respond to uh, the, a question about um, uh, U.S. anti-war work and anti. Yeah, I think. Let me read it out. Um, yeah. Everybody has it. Um, The question from the audience, which I think might build productively on this, is how do feminists support the work of their sisters in other parts of the world without skewing the lessons from or taking agency away from the people organizing on the ground in those countries? The classic feminist internationalist question. Well, there, you know, I think two things (laughs) is I think that's an excellent question. And one thing that we have to do is is decenter ourselves, right? On the one hand, that that means that we're not going around telling people what to do, right? But that we are trying to have conversations, engage in 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 discussions across borders, right, with people who are actually working on the ground and creating creating spaces where we can have these conversations. It's clear that the old ways that we've been organizing, that we've been thinking through these things have really reached the limit, right? In terms of what we can understand, some things are crystal clear, you know, capitalism and militarism, they go together. That's clear, right? If you don't know it now, I think you're never going to get it. But how do people from powerful countries like the U.S., how do our progressive movements listen to, work with um, um, progressive movements, feminist movements in um, other places is really an important question. The question that precedes it, though, is where are we going to meet? How are we going to get together to talk? And how are we, particularly particularly in the U.S., how, how, what do we need, how do we need to listen? Right. How do we really need to hear the voices? Right. And at the same time, know that only doing one thing is not going to get us too far. Right. So we have to also have our own ethical political framework that will help us deal with what's happening in the U.S. while at the same time listening to our sisters in Okinawa or the Philippines or Ukraine or Yemen, Palestine. Right. And so what's the both and moment here that we really need to embrace as a moment of opportunity as feminists specifically? 
right? So that we can take responsibility for the atrocities committed by our government and at the same time support, be in solidarity um, with our sister's other place, but also they can be in solidarity with us, right? Right. I feel like it's a two way street. Yeah. That two wayness of it seems like the key and the thing that Americans are the least susceptible to. (laughs) And I wanted to just throw in um, another feminist I admire greatly who often said both and was Anne Snittow. And she wrote an incredible book called Visitors, which was about being a feminist who went to Poland immediately after the Cold War and spent a lot of time doing feminist organizing and uh, was in Poland every year for for years and built a lot of relationships, hosted a lot of Eastern European feminists in the U.S. when they came here. Um, And what I like about the book, which is sort of a memoir about that work, um, is that you see in real time the way these conversations can happen and how awkward they often are, but how productive they can be and the way that assumptions run into each other and sort of how you deal with that. And I think it's just an extraordinary memoir of sort of like literally sorting through this process. And it has the advantage too, that it's extremely funny. Um, She has an actual sense of humor about the sort of exchange going on and how challenging it can be, but it's very politically serious at the same time. Um, And I love that book. And I really, I do recommend it. And especially given what's going on right now, it feels very, very relevant. Um, And I wanted to add, there's a question from the audience that is, that is tightly related to the last one, which is um, maybe especially for the journalists here, is there an effective way for media outlets to highlight gender struggles in conflict without upholding pro-imperialist sentiments? Is it in language? Is it in sourcing? How should the media handle this? Yeah, that's a really great question. I mean, I think one of the um, things about uh, journalism is that, you know, I I don't subscribe to this idea that journalists are objective. We bring our own assumptions to a story. Um, And I think sometimes journalism entails upholding these ideas we have about women. So for example, in the context of Afghanistan, there were a lot of stories about um, how to save Afghan women um, that were based on our own, you know, very, very clear like American priorities and values. And I think one of the ways of really challenging that is, complicating that like journalists should be and I know a lot of journalists do should be okay with complicating that reality uh complicating those assumptions um and one of the you know one of the uh most critical ways is to actually uh, what I have found is to talk to people about why you know what has changed in their life rather than ask them like oh, why are you doing what you do? Ask them the what, like ask them the how, ask them what it is, how their life has changed. And these are things that, you know, what starts to emerge is a more complicated story of women's lives rather than a reflection of what we want to hear. Um, 
So I want to um, raise um, maybe one last audience question that came in. Um, so there, the question is, there are some very good anti-war and anti-militarism groups in the U.S., Justice is Global, Dissenters, War Resisters League, but there's also a tendency towards campism or tankyism in some parts of the, the American left. Um, for instance, people praising Xi Jinping. Um, what should we do about this? Call it out. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think so. There's a common mm-hmm. response, which appears to be the response on this call. But I think, yeah, Marco. <laughs> Yeah. As feminists, I think, you know, uh, if we we need to find a third way, so to speak. Right. Some of so much of what's happening are the continuities of the Cold War where there were, you know, two ways. And remember the old um, non-aligned movement. In a sense, we have to generate a movement that is non-aligned. Right. Except to principles that really are life affirming and, you know, all the other things that we can come together to decide. I think we get stuck if we take one existing road or another. I think as feminists, this is a time we have an opportunity to create a third, fourth way. And that's what I would like to see and not keep falling into the trap of, are you this or that? You know, are you on the side of the imperialists or are you on the side of the old Soviet Union people or whatever, right? What would a feminist non-aligned movement, feminist, non-aligned, anti-militarist, pro-culture of life movement look like in this moment? And to me, that's the exciting question and a really amazing project that we could engage Right. Well, at the same time, trying to stop the specific wars that um, that we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think um, from what you're saying, one of the most important things about thinking about something like kinkyism is actually that it's this sort of um, quite tragic retreat to the old. Um, when, as you're saying, what's so exciting about feminist anti-imperialism today is actually because of the challenges we've been discussing today. It has to be reconstructed. Like there are things that have to be figured out. And those questions are very, very challenging, but they're also extremely interesting and require actual human relationships as opposed to a purely theoretical relationship to something like solidarity. Um, And I promised I would not keep everybody until midnight. And so I'm actually going to um, wrap up. Um, I wanted to just take a moment to see if anyone had anything they were dying to say before I did wrap up. Um, And hearing that that is not the case, and we're all talked out, um, I want to express gratitude to the panelists. Um, Thank you all for um, bringing all your thoughtfulness and your expertise to this conversation and also to Haymarket. Um, Many of these conversations will be taking place um, in the forthcoming issue of Lux. So again, of course, I encourage you to subscribe. And one of the purposes of the magazine as we've conceived it is to use it. It's not just a magazine, but to use it as a tool for 
reaching out to people for actually having these conversations and then printing them and making them available to people um, for doing the types of analysis that we see are absent in other sorts of media. Um, you know, I always think the really selfish and amazing thing about being an editor is we have these big questions and we get to assign people to go and investigate them. Um, we get to build these relationships through the institution that is the magazine. And so we do hope you'll subscribe. This is the type of work we'll be continuing to do. Huge thanks to our panelists and huge thanks to you for coming. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, guys. It was a Thank pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thanks, much. Everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.